Our scripture reading this morning is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Yeah, I've got my um, Meet Memphis shirt on. That was awesome yesterday. Uh, I was at the Child Evangelism Fellowship to do some sprucing up and then went to one of the block parties with Advanced Memphis, and it was really cool. Uh, those of you who weren't there, you need to be there next year. It was awesome. Loved it. So uh, at one point, we were talking about this being a Sunday where we'd pick up with a Daniel sermon and so on, but... You don't, I don't know if you realize it, but a moment is coming. And I want to prepare you for that moment. There's some vital information you need in order to make a good decision. And that information relates to both the next senior pastor, but also the recognition of elders and of deacons. So we're going to take about four weeks to get you prepared to make a good decision. And uh, we'll jump back into Daniel uh, as God provides opportunity. Uh, that'll happen after VBS Sunday, which is in the summer. We have five sermons left in Daniel, and we will get it. But for right now, I want you to flourish and do well in a decision that you need to make. And so that's what we're going to be talking about for the next four Sundays. So the pastoral search process has been kind of interesting and I thought I would read you a, a cover letter uh, just to help you appreciate the challenge, all right? Dear First of Ann, I am writing to express... I'm not going to read the... Well, maybe I'll read the name. We'll see. I am writing to express my interest in your open position. I have a passion for Jesus and an earnest desire to be used in his service. But I feel I should be forthcoming as it concerns my history. Yes, I persecuted followers of Jesus, and yes, I have committed some to prison and others to death. But I like to think that's all behind me now. Think of that as my before compared to my after. 
It's also true that I have never ministered in one place for very long, sometimes for only a few weeks. Religious folk in cities where I've preached have been offended by some of the things I've said. My preaching triggered a lot of offense, so on some occasions, I've had to hightail it out of town. I, I like to think that my teaching is passionate and stirs people to action. Some just seem to take the wrong action. Uh, I have been imprisoned on a number of occasions, and yes, some of the things I've been accused of are true, but I think the justice system is messed up because they just, because they just don't get Jesus. Uh, wherever I go, I've often supported myself as a tailor, which means I'm fairly mobile. I'm single, I don't have a lot of strings keeping me in one place, so I can come to be your next pastor anytime soon. If you're interested in discussing my potential as your next pastor, please let me know. Would you, you know, what are you, what are you feeling? Yours in Christ, Paul the Apostle. <laughs> You know, distinguishing between a, uh, a lot of razzle-dazzle and a diamond in the rough is no small challenge. Uh, we are not alone. Here's what Samuel faced. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. So God's decided it's time for king next in Israel. You shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. So God knows who is the right man. And God pledges to give guidance to Samuel. I'm, I'm going to help you identify who that person is. So in verse 6 we read, When they entered, the sons of Jesse, he looked at Eliab, who's the oldest, and he thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Now Samuel was gracious enough to kind of let us look over his shoulder and hear his thoughts. And he's going, Oh, Eliab! I am impressed. He looks like the perfect candidate to be king next. Verse 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or that at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So God was saying, Eliab looks awesome in your eyes but he's not awesome in my eyes so they brought son number two abinadab god's reply no how about shema no four more sons no 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 <laughs> david who's number eight was the right one and god let him know God provided clear and explicit guidance that allowed Samuel to identify God's choice to be the next king of Israel. We're going to face a similar choice. Who is God's choice as our next pastor? Wouldn't it be great to have a prophetic hotline to God, kind of like Samuel had? <laughs> What do you think, God? Is this the guy? 
God has done us one better by providing a profile that specifies what he seeks. He's actually told us, this is what I'm looking for. And here are the things that you should be looking for. So get on your list what is on my list. In the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 3, and the book of Titus, chapter 1, we have been given a comprehensive list of what God says we need in our next pastor. I find these lists interesting for both what is on them, but also what is not. So many of the things that we would say, oh, we got to have a guy who is da-da-da-da-da. And <laughs> here are the things God says, this is what's on my list. Don't go all a lie upon me, first of all. Find the man who meets these qualifications because that is the kind of man that I would say yes to. These are God's non-negotiables. These are the things that he says, no matter what else he brings to the table, we need these qualities. So in 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 and 2, it says this, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be. And then follows a list of numerous virtues and vices. By virtue, I mean these are things that he should be and vices, things he shouldn't be. That's what you're looking for. In Titus 1.5, we find something similar. He says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And then a list follows of vices and virtues. And there are five terms that are the same as we find in the list in Timothy, but then there are some others that are either a little bit different or added to the list. So we want to figure out what those are. Now, you may have noticed that the Timothy list says, here's what you need to find in an overseer. And the Titus list says, here's what you should look for in an elder. And you might be saying, well, what does that have to do with a pastor? I mean, that's a different term, right? How do we know these lists don't concern two different individuals? You know, the Timothy list is overseers, and the Titus list is elders. What's going on? All right, good question. Here's Acts 20, verse 17. Paul, who wrote both Timothy and Titus, gives us some insight. In fact, the, Titus pass or the Timothy passage was actually written to Timothy, who was in Ephesus. So I'm going to read you a passage that relates to the Ephesian elders, and it's going to help us unpack these terms. So from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, and he called to him the elders of the church. So Paul was making his way to Jerusalem. He was on a fast track to get there. And he wanted to talk to the elders at Ephesus, but he knew that if he stopped in Ephesus, he would not be able to keep moving toward Jerusalem. So he sent a message to Miletus, uh, from Miletus, where the boat landed, which is about 20 miles from Ephesus, and he said, come down and meet me. He wants to encourage the elders of the church, and so he planned this rendezvous. Now, this is a church, by the way, that's about five years old. In Acts 20, 28, here's part of his encouragement to these elders. He says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, 
to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Did you catch what's going on there? God, he calls for the elders and he says, the Holy Spirit made you overseers and your function is to pastor the church. In other words, Paul is using these terms interchangeably. An elder is an overseer, is a pastor, is a shepherd. So these lists, both 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, are describing the same individual who can be described as a shepherd, which is a synonym for pastor, or an elder, or an overseer. It's all the same. Uh, the verb is to shepherd. He's appointed you to shepherd the flock. But the noun is also used, for example, in Ephesians 4.11. Uh, he says, you know, that God has given certain gifts to the church. Among these are pastors and teachers. So, here's your key. A pastor equals a shepherd. Those are the same word. Equals an elder, a little bit different Greek word, equals an overseer. They're all the same. They're not unique. These terms all connect to the same person. They might emphasize something different. For example, elder tells us about how he is viewed. Overseer tells us about something he does. So does shepherd. But they're all describing the same person. So here's the beauty of what we're proposing to do over the next few weeks. These qualifications are relevant to the recognition of elders, which you are going to be asked to do in a few weeks and they are relevant to the recognition of a next pastor because there's really no difference between those individuals. So the beauty of what we're going to do is this gives you some great, in what's yet to come, gives you some great information by which you can make a wise decision that is driven by God's priorities as you prepare to recognize elders in a few weeks. You need to ask yourself, are these things true of each of these individuals? And at some point, I don't know when, but we're definitely closer to it than when I first came here, we're going to recognize pastor next, and you're going to be asked the same question. Based on what you understand, is this person, can we describe him by these different things? So hopefully you will take notes and pay attention so that you can get it right in a few weeks when you vote for elders and at such time as we're voting for pastor next, which I, I'm assuming that's, uh, let's put it this way, we're getting closer. We'll see what God wants to do. Because we're going to be looking at uh, 1 Timothy 3, we're also going to talk about in two weeks the qualifications for a deacon. And just because I don't want the women in the room to think they've been left out, we are going to look at some similar lists. One is found in 1 Timothy 3 and another is found in Titus 2 that relate to women. What does God say women need to be, both virtues and vices? And so we'll be looking at that uh, as we go through the course of this four-week series on God's man, God's women, God's servants. The lists in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 tell you what God expects of those who serve as elders or shepherds at first of end. These lists also tell us what to look for according to God in our next pastor. God would say, find a man who is this. 
So before we get into the specifics of those qualifications, what do each of them mean? I want to ask a, a broader question. So how are we supposed to apply these qualifications? He is to be this, this, and this, and should not be this, this, and this. How do I apply that? Well, there's four views. One view is that these are absolute standards, that he needs to be someone who, you know, for example, he's not pugnacious, which means not a fighter or not a striker. If you were to use that as an absolute standard, meaning he needs to be an, a perfect example of that, well, then you need to go back to the playground and see, did he ever punch anybody? Which is going to make it really hard to determine, uh, well, let's put it this way, no one would qualify if these are being suggested in an absolute way. Uh, another view, this is a popular view today, uh, is that these are antiquated qualities. You know, a successful church needs pastors and elders who bring other qualities to the table. That was what they needed back then, but it's not what we need today. Obviously, I think that's stupid. <laughs> Uh, another way you could view this is these are aspirational qualities. This is basically about good intentions. Yes, I, you know, yeah, I got in a brawl last week, but I don't want to. I want to be better. So I aspire to not be pugnacious. And I would say, well, that could probably apply to anyone who names the name of Jesus because we all aspire to be better, but somehow these are being used to do more than just talk about our aspirations or our good intentions. So view four, and you know how this works. Usually the last view is the one the guy talking likes, but I think this is the one that is supported by Scripture, uh, and that is present necessity. Each of these terms or phrases describes who someone is and it's a term that can be used that is without bending the definition of the word you can say this man is not pugnacious he's not a striker not a fighter that may have been true at some point in his history but it is not true today and I want to explain why that's I think what the scriptures actually say about how we should understand this. So there are two criteria. The first has to do with grammar. So for example, in 1 Timothy 3.2, it says an overseer then, and remember it's overseer, elder, pastor, they're all the same, must be above reproach. And in Titus 1.7, he uses the same construction for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. And the actual phrases there, must, comes from a little Greek word, day, which is called a particle of necessity, and ani, which is a verb. It is necessary for him to be. Now, must be is not the same as must have been. Paul could have used the language. I mean, the, the Greek word eimi does have, for example, a perfect tense, which would allow him to be able to say, he must have been, meaning he has always been. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying these qualities need to be evident in this man. You need to be able to see them. They're, they're there. There may have been a point in his history where that was not the case, but it is the case. 
And I'm not talking about, well, last week he was not and this week he is. I'm talking about uh, before he came to Christ or in the early years, but he has become someone who is different than what he once was. That's the grammar. It says must be. The second reason really just has to do with the concept of transformation. What I'm about to read to you is to me one of the most stunning verses, although I have trouble identifying less than a couple thousand in this category, but this, is, this to me is amazing to read this. This is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Listen to this. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. These terms were appropriate labels for you, but they're not anymore. You have been transformed by Jesus Christ to such an extent that those terms don't connect with you. Yes, that's a part of your history, but that's not who you are. It is who you were, but you have cooperated with God's work of transformation to such an extent that you have become someone better. What I find so powerful about this is that we don't need to be defined by our past. Who I was does not keep me from who I can become in Jesus Christ. Adulterer, thief, swindler, those may have described who certain Corinthians were, but those terms are no longer descriptive of who they are. That is stunning to me. They have been transformed and become someone new. God can do this. And this is what Paul says we should look for in pastors, shepherds, elders, overseers. It is no stretch to use these terms. And there's actually 26 of them. It's no stretch to use these terms to describe who this man truly is. Because he's cooperated with God's character transformation plan to where who he was is not who he is. I look back at my own life, and, um, you know, I've told you this story before, but I'll, I'll mention it once again. We're coming up on it. It's going to actually fall on a Sunday, the anniversary of the death of my brother, Tommy. And I've told you about how I watched him. He was about the distance from here to the back door. I watched him get run over by a milk truck. And he had come to me a little bit earlier and said, hey, can I go to Cheryl Golden's? I'm five, he's three. And I said, sure. And so I gave him permission. And for years, labored under, I am responsible for my brother's death. Now, God used that about a year later. I knew I needed Jesus and at a VBS in the summer, like what we're doing. I accepted Jesus as my Savior and never looked back. 
Now you can say, Jim, it's unrealistic for you to put that expectation on yourself. You were five years old. And I say, yes, but I can't undo all of the swirl of emotions and so on that go with that. I am so grateful that Jesus brought me to himself at age six because he spared us all the sight of what I might become without him. When Jesus saves us, a trajectory that looks like this becomes like this. And that's what we're looking for, is men whose trajectory has been changed by coming to Jesus Christ. Now, transformation is not just relevant to pastors and elders. <laughs> well, they need to be transformed, but we're good with the status quo. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, transformation is something he wants you to pursue. That is something that Jesus wants everyone in this room to go after. And so what I want to do this morning in the time that remains is just give you seven key principles for all believers. This is not just relevant to elders and pastors, although it is relevant to them, but it's relevant to us all. Think of this as seven myths about transformation that I want to challenge by certain principles. First one, no one is saved by works. 2 Timothy 1.9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. No one can live a good enough life to earn salvation. So, so let's be clear, when we talk about transformation, we're ta not talking about transformation so that you can be saved, because you can never be live a good enough life to earn salvation. There will still be sin particles in whatever I do that make it something that is, you know, all our righteousness are as filthy rags before the Lord. However, principle number two, works are the evidence of salvation. When someone is saved, a process of transformation starts. And if you don't see the transformation, the transformation is not the basis of salvation, but it is the fruit. By this we know that we've come to him if we keep his commandments. Did you get that? He's not saying it's the cause, but it is the consequence. It is the result. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. For whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. To be saved is to do the works that flow from being saved. Number three, doing what is right promotes our good. Jeremiah 5.25 says, Your iniquities have turned these away and your sins have withheld good from you. We, we may think it's desirable to sin, but it always, always takes away something valuable. Sin never works our true good. And you can go back to the beginning. <laughs> Here, this fruit. I mean, doesn't it look amazing? And God knows that if you eat of that, you're actually going to 
have a, a level of wisdom that you wouldn't otherwise have, this is such a good thing. Why wouldn't you? And Eve ate, and Adam ate, and we have been living with the consequences ever since. Sin never accomplishes our true good. Principle number four, I like this one. God supplies what we lack. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Did you catch that? We need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That means we need to take it seriously, that we need to live the way a person who names Jesus Christ says we should live. But God supplies what we lack, which is both the will and the horsepower to actually live for his pleasure. It is possible for someone who names the name of Jesus to actually do things that Jesus says, now I like that. That is good. Do you realize that God has given you the potential to be a transformation superstar? I don't mean that in a, you know, get a trophy way, but it is possible for you to actually live in a way that is pleasing to him because he gives you the ability to choose what pleases him and then do what pleases him. You know, to look at any of us would be to go, <laughs> I don't see much, to, there's not much remarkable here. I'm telling you, if you have named the name of Jesus, every person in here is remarkable for your ability to please Jesus because he will supply both the will and the energy to do that. You know, in the year 2000, there was an NFL draft of different players. There was someone who was on the list. He was actually number 199. Uh, so he, you know, the, he wasn't picked until the seventh round, and he went to start as a fourth-string quarterback. His name was Brady. And initially, you thought, <laughs> okay, but it didn't take long, did it? Take this in the right way, but God has made you the Brady's of transformation. You may not look like much. I may not look like much. But he has given us the capacity to actually live for a way in which Jesus is going, yes, yes. And he's given us the ability to be able to live in that way. That is who we are. And God will supply what we lack. Flip side, but we have a part to play. We need to do our part. Uh, he will supply what we lack, but we have a part to play. In 2 Timothy 2.15, he says, Be diligent. There's work at this to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. There's work at growing. Make it something that's a part of your daily routine, your spiritual disciplines. 
And God's word is a part of what you're going to need. You need to understand God's perspective on your life, what you're dealing with. That will be helpful to you. Another thing is mutual encouragement. Uh, in Hebrews 3.13, he says, But encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We don't just each go on this kind of personal spiritual transformation pilgrimage solo. We depend on each other. In fact, without a daily dose or a weekly dose or a regular dose of encouragement from one another, we will actually develop a shell in which we have become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Our part includes prayer. We need to be praying. But we have a part to play. Transformation involves time well used. In Hebrews 5.12, the writer said, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. Now this is actually an indictment of them. What he's saying is that by this time, you ought to be at a point where you are a teacher, where you are basically capable of ministering God's truth to other people in such a way that their lives are shaped more to look like Jesus. But you're not. I've still got to go back to the basics with you. And so maturity, transformation, does involve time, but just because you've been a believer 20 years doesn't mean that you have been transformed if you have not well used that time. And principle number seven, transformation produces fruit. Uh, the passage that was read a little bit earlier before the sermon. Did you catch this? Supply all diligence. And in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. Get this. For if these qualities are, are yours and are increasing, get that? So you are actually growing in these qualities. Here's what results. They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If these qualities are not increasing, they're not on the uptrend, Useless, unfruitful. But if these qualities are yours, and there's, you can use these terms to describe who you are, you're going to produce fruit. You're going to be useful. You are going to demonstrate the power of what it means to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. Without these virtues, we are useless and unfruitful, but the cultivation of them will make us difference makers in the lives of others. If these are yours and are increasing, by the way, it never stops. Ha, huh, I'm good. I got seven down, you know, seven's covered. Number eight, there's eight in the list. Number eight, I still got a little bit to go, but I'm almost there. No, no. If these are yours, and these terms can be used of you, and you are growing in your ability to demonstrate these qualities, 
then you will be useful and fruitful. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, transformation is something he wants you to pursue. Now, pastors and elders should be examples of how we can strive for transformation. It should be someone you can come up to and ask and say, hey, I want to understand how to not be pugnacious because I'm struggling with that in terms of wanting to give people consequences and dish out to them in response to what they do to me. How can I do that? And that elder ought to be someone who can say, well, I'm, that is a great question. Here are things that I have worked on in my life or disciplines that I have used that have been helpful toward that end. Whatever your question, you ought to be able to go to them and say, how do I become, and you can pick one of the 26, and they can say, let me tell you. So what do I do with all this, Jim? What am I supposed to do? All right. This question to me is a really challenging one. Okay, I, I want to I get on the transformation train. How do I do that? It starts right here. How much time and energy do I invest in spiritual fitness? You know, I struggle with this in the morning. Flip on the computer. <laughs> What's the latest? Is that what's most important? Or is saying, and this is what I strive to do, God, I would like to learn whatever you want to tell me this morning, and I will read your word until you tell me something or show me something, because that's what matters most. We spend a lot of time and energy in things like our diet, uh, physical well-being, earning money, whatever, whatever, your recreation and things you do for fun. If someone were to follow me around and analyze what's important to him, would one of the conclusions be it is obvious that investing time and energy in spiritual fitness matters profoundly to him? And would they say that of you? You know, my last uh, church assignment, I was in Minnesota, and uh, a couple of the elders of the church and I met on a consistent basis every week. And when I left, I thought this was interesting. The, uh, one of those men said to me, Jim, you've been very helpful, but one of the things that I found most helpful was you let us see what you do to be intentional about spiritual transformation because I'd walked through different things that I do. And uh, I, I really didn't, you know, thought, huh, that's interesting. Uh, I've found a way that we can do that without me having to do that with you. There's a book, in fact, I've read this book several times. It's called Spiritual Disciplines uh, for the Christian Life by Don Whitney. And this book, if, if you want to take seriously the process of spiritual transformation, why don't you get together with a group? You can get together as a group of women, get together as a group of men, men's ministry, you could do this, but take this and work your way through it so that you can grow intentional spiritual fitness. 
It's a great book, and uh, that will be helpful to you. Here's the thing to me that is so encouraging. You remember last week we talked about straining against the oars and how the disciples were in the middle of the lake and Jesus was watching them and he came to them in the middle of the lake in the early hours of the morning and when they invited them into the boat then they arrived at their destination and the storm was gone. That's actually a picture into something that Jesus is going to do for you, for me. Here's the passage, 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that. When he appears, we will be just like him because we will see him just as he is. Be transformers, and I'm not referring to the movie. Be transformers. Those who are being transformed and becoming more and more what Jesus says, now that's what I'm looking for. But know this. Do your part. Row as far as you can. There is coming a moment. (laughs) Oh, I can't wait. When Jesus is going to say, good job. Come join me. And in that moment, I look in his face and I will see him, but also he will change me. He'll complete the process. And I'll be able to look at you and you'll be able to look, like, look at me and we'll both say, you look like Jesus. Because that's what he's going to do. So we're going to row as hard as we can and become the people he wants, knowing that at some point Jesus is going to help take us where our effort alone couldn't, and that is bring us to a place where we look like Jesus. Can't wait. Come on, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we want to be those who are doing our part to be transformed. And so we are pleading with you to show us what we need to do this week, perhaps to identify a particular area in our life that needs work. And don't just say, well, we'll see what happens, but instead start praying accordingly, studying your word accordingly, asking for encouragement from others that it's informed by this desire. We want to be a people who are being transformed, who are more and more looking like your son, even as we can't wait for that moment when we look into your face and that work will be done. Can't wait, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.